invite you now to please take God's word and turn with me to our scripture reading this morning, Nehemiah chapter 6. Pastor Nick is continuing his, his sermon series in the book of Nehemiah. So this morning I'll be reading Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Again, Nehemiah chapter 6, beginning at verse number 1. When word came to Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sabalat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers, messengers to them with a reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Zabalat sent his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Gisham says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, so come, let us meet together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak in, in, uh, for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehitabah, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Shabala had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Shabala, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet, Noadiah, and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elu in 52 days. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'm super uh, thankful for Kevin to read that because uh, he got the the tricky names and uh, he'll probably never sign up to do liturgy again. (laughs) Hey, he did a great job. He sounded like, uh, man, that was awesome. Thank you. We're going to keep reading uh, in chapter 6. We're gonna, we'll finish that chapter here in just a couple of minutes. But um, I want to start by, by just asking a question. How, have, how many of you have ever been to Jerusalem? Five? Five. Okay, we're going to have to fix that. That's, 
that's a plan for me. We're going we're gonna to all go someday. We'll, we'll get, let's get a trip start, started. You guys know my bad story already about Jerusalem, so uh, at some point we're going to get to go. We're going to do this thing. So um, one of the interesting things about Jerusalem is it's kind of just a nonstop archaeological project. I mean, if, if you're into that thing, kind of thing, you can read about all that they're doing all the time, and there's constantly projects. There's constantly archaeologists uh, in, in Jerusalem. And I need to tell you about uh, 2007. Um, in 2007, there was a team uh, who had been uh, assigned to go work on there. The, there was this tower that had been built in the first century B.C., which was when Herod was kind of rebuilding a lot of Jerusalem. And it was, it was an unstable tower, and they were needing to, to figure out what to do with it. And um, they decided, let's build it, but before, to do that, we've got to get further down to the to a to some kind of bedrock, to some kind of firm foundation that we can, we can use to support this thing, because everything on, underneath it is kind of shaky. And so um, they start digging, and they found something unexpected. Uh, that woman in the white shirt is, is a part of that team uh, of what they found underneath this tower. They realized there was something very unique underneath this tower, and it was a wall. But it was a wall like archaeologists hadn't seen before. Um, it, it had used different construction methods than what they were used to seeing in Jerusalem. And you already know where I'm going with this, if you're thinking. And so they brought in some other s- experts, and they said, this wall is unique. What, where is this from, and uh, what is this? And they realized it was Persian. It had a Persian influence. The construction of it was different. They had done it Uh, in a Persian style of building. Well, why in the world would the Persians have been building a wall? It's funny you ask. If you've you've been with us the last few weeks, right, you know that Nehemiah was born and raised in Persia. He was a Jew, but he was raised there. He was an official there. He had learned everything there and was sent by the Persians to get to go to Jerusalem. And so as they keep digging, they're finding more and more, and you're starting to see some of this on these, on these pictures, but um, they find pottery, and it's not just any kind of pottery. It's Persian-influenced pottery. Why in the world is there fourth-century Persian pottery next to this wall of Persian influence? That's very strange. They also found the skeletons of two large dogs, did you know that most cultures don't bury dogs, but there was a culture who, in that time who did bury dogs? Guess who it was? You guys are paying attention. That's right. The Persians buried dogs, and that was kind of a unique thing back then. Why are these dogs buried next to this wall with Persian pottery? Of a Before 2007, if you'd have asked the academic world about the story of Nehemiah, people would have said, sounds like something made up. We don't have any... any evidence of of Nehemiah. Since that time, you can't hardly find a a scholar who will will doubt the existence of Nehemiah in this great project. We know from this wall and, and, and what we realized that they did, which was they took parts of an existing wall and put it back together. This is all that's kind of remained because there were multiple conquests that took place. Underneath that tower, the foundation of it was Nehemiah's wall. And I tell you this because I want to remind you, it's easy sometimes when we read Scripture to just think about 
these stories, these stories. But Nehemiah was right there. And I just want, I, I think, I find that helpful for, for me. Hopefully it's helpful for you. We are dealing with real people. We're dealing with a real story. We're dealing with, with real history, a problem that really happened. Nehemiah was a real man trying to lead his people to rebuild and to trust in a real God. And so we're going we're to conclude our series on Nehemiah today. And, and, and so I, as we start, I just need to remind you uh, that this is relevant to our lives. This is people who've lived for God. This is what they have experienced. This is, this is how they, they dealt with the adversities that we've been talking about. And so this is relevant to our lives. It's relevant us, for us as individuals. It's, it's relevant for us as a church. As we seek out what does it mean to grow, what does it mean to change, to, to improve the things around us in our lives. As we deal with incredibly difficult things, how do we do that? And, and Nehemiah, this real man who built that wall, is, is here to help us. So let's pray for our time together that God would use uh, his word to change our hearts and minds. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that what we see through the ages, through antiquity, through archaeology, it upholds what we already knew to be true. It reaffirms what we've already known, that your word is trustworthy. We can put our lives in it. So use this time this morning for, for our benefit, for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to just pick up in verse 15 one more time of Nehemiah 6, and we'll, we'll finish this chapter. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah. And his son Jehohanan had, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. And they spoke of his good deeds in my presence, and I reported and reported my work to him. And Tobiah sent, sent letters to make me afraid. So I'm going to try to do something this morning that might be a little too ambitious. Because Sunday, next Sunday, is the first Sunday of Lent, and we're going to start a new series then. So we've got to finish the book of Nehemiah. And so this is our last week. And if you know, there are 13 chapters in the book of Nehemiah. We're in chapter 6 um, so we're going we're gonna to just kind of speed over some of this story, and I'm going to do my best to, to, to tell you where we are, and, and then we'll, we'll, we'll see some important parts uh, as, as, we, as we do that. So let me just give you kind of a quick review of where we've been, and then I'll finish the story for you. So here we go. Okay, Nehemiah was a Jew, and he was living in Persia. They had been taken into captivity by the Babylonians, the Persians defeated the Babylonians, so now they're under control of the Persian Empire. The Persians allow the Jews to go back to, 
to Jerusalem, and they're going to go and rebuild the temple. And, and remember, that happens in 516 B.C. And so probably 50, 60, 70 years after that, we see um, Nehemiah is still living in Persia. He's still working for the king. And he hears that Jerusalem is in bad shape. Things aren't going well there. And he says, I've got to do something about it. And so he starts to pray. He's brokenhearted over this. He prays. And finally, after four months of praying, a door opens. A door opens in his conversations with the king. And he says, what? what's the deal? What do you want from me? And he says, can I go back to my homeland and, and, and rebuild things? Because they're in, in disrepair. And so... He's given the authority to go. He, they, he's made the governor of that region. He's given the, the resources, the materials, all that he needs. It's, it's truly the hand of God get, letting him get to go. And, and so he tells the Jews in Jerusalem, God is for us. He's given us this opportunity. Let's build. And he inspires the people, and they get to work. And it's going great. There are thousands and thousands of Jews that have chipped in, and they're helping. He's got them spread out everywhere. There's just an amazing thing happening. And then the opposition shows up. And so we've been looking the last two weeks at, at, at how to overcome uh, people who want to see us fail. How do we overcome the enemy? And remember we said we, we face these three enemies, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they all kind of work together to keep us from making progress with God. They don't want to see us accomplish any goal. They want to see us live like the rest of the world. And so we've been looking at this, this story through, through both the lens of, of individuals and as a church, right? How can we have godly change in our lives? How can our church uh, follow God's calling for us? How do, we, how do we move forward the way Nehemiah did in his book? So we've been talking about caring, praying, trusting in God's sovereignty, and, and living in faith. These have been major themes throughout the book so far. And so now, that's not too bad for the first six chapters. Uh, let me tell you what happens next, and we're going to go even faster than that. So as we've just read chapter six, we know opposition continues. They're still trying to come after him. They can't stop the work. Well, let's just, let's just knock Nehemiah down. Let's get him into a... Um, into a scandal. And that's what they're trying to do. It never stops. It never goes away. It never gets easy. But Nehemiah and the people are going to persevere, and the wall is finished in 52 days. And that's amazing. But remember, there were some 40,000 people working on this project, and, and all over the span of about a mile and a half, they're all working on this wall. And, and they're not starting from scratch, but they are rebuilding the rubble as it laid. Uh, and in other places where things had been broken, they were doing new, new things. But but, but in 52 days, it, it was obviously the work of God. They were, uh, people were amazed and, and, and feared God as they saw what had happened. The, the archaeologists who, who found part of Nehemiah's wall said, it, yes, it was Persian, but also it, it was built in a hurry. You could tell that it was a hurried construction. It wasn't as clean and neat and orderly as it might have could have been might have been or normally would have been, but they knew the time was against them because of the opposition, the enemies that were coming to Jerusalem. We had to get the wall done. And so it was built in a hurry in 52 days. And so after the wall is completed, we're, they're, they're going to spend several chapters talking about this. There's a spiritual renewal that takes place in Jerusalem. And, um, 
And we find out that Nehemiah is going to stay in his role as governor for 12 years. So he goes to rebuild the wall, and then he stays for 12 years. He gets it done in 52 days, and then he leads the people for that long. We, we find out that he does go back. He's got to go back to Persia at some point after these 12 years, and he spends a handful of years. We don't know. Some say up to 10, some say two, maybe. We're not sure. But long enough for things to kind of get out of whack. And then he's allowed to return. And so he shows back up to the place where he'd been the governor for where they'd seen all the spiritual renewal and revival and all these things happening. And he finds a mess. Corruptness, sin, all the problems you can think of, it's happening in Jerusalem. And he's going to then do another reform. We'll see that in chapter 13. So I'm trying to cover a lot of material. That's a pretty good summary of the next seven chapters but let me tell you a few things that are key moments in this because I, I think they're, they're, there's a lot that you and I can take from, from Nehemiah in this kind of last part of the story. And, and the, first, the first thing I want to tell you is, 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 is something that is found in what we have already read this morning. When his enemies, when, when they see that, um, that he is leading the people, when he sees that the Jews are on their way to success of rebuilding this wall, they have this last-ditch effort to stop them. And, and it's focused on shutting down the leader. If we, can, if we can get him stopped, maybe everybody else will, will get discouraged and quit. They, they try to get him to leave Jerusalem, and we, we, led that, we read that story just a second ago. Um, they wanted to have a meeting in Ono, and the joke is that Nehemiah said, Oh no, to Ono. Oh he said, I don't, I'm not going. You, you will not trick me into this. I know what you're up to. I'm not leaving. I'm not putting myself out there like that. Oh no to oh no. But he shares a principle um, that I think we need in our lives. And, and that is this. He says in verse 3, his response. He says, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Nehemiah recognized he was doing something of, of, of kingdom value, and he needed to stay focused on that. When, when we as individuals um, are, are committed to kingdom change, and we've been talking about what does that look like to, to grow in godliness, to, 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 to cut out the sins in our lives, and, and, and when we as um, church are, are pursuing God's mission, often a key strategy of the enemy is simply to get us distracted. Simply get us distracted. Many of you are familiar with uh, the famous book, Screwtape Letters, which was written by C.S. Lewis. And, and he spends a lot of time on this idea. I, I know some of you have studied this uh, in, in some small groups, but um, there, there are several times throughout the book where he says things like, hey, don't worry about winning an argument with, with your patient. Don't worry about, about any of that. Every time he's on the verge of progress, just remind him he's hungry. Remember, remind him he hasn't had lunch yet and, and he needs to stop. Remind him of, that he needs to read the newspaper. Over and over and over. Anytime something's getting somewhere, all you got to do is just, just detour him a little bit. Just, just distract him enough and he'll forget all about this uh, Jesus business. You and I have these little rectangles in our pockets and purses and, and sometimes some, we'll sit and we don't know what else to do. And oop, it's just kind of this, 
We don't even think about it. We just automatically grab it. Oh, let me see. Oh, I'm stopping at a light traffic light. Oh, well, I'm doing this. Oh. It's distractions. We're, we, we are creatures of habit, and we can easily be distracted. And the enemy can, can get us off our task so easily. We've, we've shared some of these statistics, but um, they're, they're, the newest data says that the average American spends five hours a day on their phone. That's all age groups. It's higher in younger groups. It's up into the eight and ten hours, just so you're aware. But the average for, for us is five hours a day on our phone. Think about that. The average American still spends, on top of that, three hours watching television. That's an eight-hour day. That's a, that's a work day of distractions. Now, some of it's a value, obviously. Some of those things are a value. But, but we are distracted as a people. We are distracted in our lives. And then we say things like, well, I don't have time to take care of my health. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to read Scripture. We do. We do, but the enemy has got us so distracted. He's got us off course that we don't know how to get back. What, what kind of kingdom work, what kind of God-honoring changes should, should you pr- be pursuing? That's a question we all need to be asking. Are, are, there, are there kingdom-worthy things that I need to be doing instead of the things that I'm doing for leisure and distraction and pure entertainment? There are things that matter. I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. That needs to become a mantra for us. It needs to become something in our minds. I'm doing a great work. God has got me doing this. I don't need to be distracted from this. We have more important things to do than to stare at rectangles all day long. And and the next point I want to make is, is one that we have mentioned before, but it's worth repeating. In in chapter 8, as they are dedicating the wall. Uh, So Nehemiah is the governor, and the priest who is there is still a man named Ezra. And and there's a book right before Nehemiah. Remember we mentioned this? It was one book for the Jews. Ezra, he's the priest. He is is the spiritual aspect guy of this whole renewal project. And so Nehemiah says, Ezra, why don't you come read the law to the people? Why don't you come read the word of God to the people so that they can hear it and know it? And, and, And they are inspired as they hear it. And... um. And we've talked about this in the last couple of months, but, but just remember that, that there, there, no wall is ever just a wall. There are no battles that you and I fight that are simply physical, that are simply earthly. The changes that you and I need to make, the, the goals that we have as a church, they're not secular goals. There is always a spiritual element to them. And we saw that even in last, last week in, in Ephesians 6. That We're not fighting against flesh and blood. We're fighting against something different. That We have enemies, powers that want to defeat us. It's a spiritual battle. It's never just physical. So, for instance, if you came to me and said, Nick, I'm really struggling to quit smoking. It would be foolish for me to just say, hey, great, let me write up a to-do list for you. Uh, I, I can get that fixed in four easy steps, right? Da-da-da-da-da. Practical advice. That would be a foolish thing for me to do. Because I, I'll just tell you, and, and it's, this is for anything, there is a spiritual element that has to be addressed in that. Anything, and all of us have them, 
any, any hindrance of sin in our lives, there's, there is a spiritual element to it. It's not just physical. It's not just practical. There are practical things. There are things that I could say, hey, well, here's just some good advice. Stop buying them. You know, whatever. There's some good practical advice. But it's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle. Fighting the good fight in any of this starts with prayer, as we saw with Nehemiah. And it continues with God's Word. These are the tools needed for battle. Remember our Ephesians 6 passage from last, that we talked about last week of putting on the armor of God. It's not our own armor. It's not our own equipment. It's the armor of God. To fight a spiritual battle, we need God's spiritual uh, armor. And then I want to mention one more thing, and we'll spend the rest of our time on this. And, and it's an idea that we see in, in Nehemiah that, that many would argue is, is the theme, it is the most important takeaway from this book. And we see it in, in chapter 8. I want you to just listen to verses 9 and 10. And this is, so Ezra has just read the, the, the law to them. They've just read the Bible to them and the people are hearing it and they are overwhelmed with sorrow as they realize their sin against God and, and all that they've been doing wrong. And, 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 and Nehemiah... Uh, is, is going to do something about it in this moment. And so this is, this is verses 9 and 10. It says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. He says, for this day is holy to our God, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is, this is a, an interesting, fascinating, groundbreaking kind of statement. And, 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 I, and if you were here last week, I told you that, um, that one of the big struggles in the Christian life is, is finding the right balance between the law, which we can just say is doing good stuff or doing doing the stuff God tells us to do, and the gospel of Jesus. There's, there's a balance in there that, that, is, that is hard for Christians. And, and you may have heard it said this way, that, that the law says do, and the gospel says done. The law says do, the gospel says done. Meaning, the good news of Jesus, the gospel, is that Christ has accomplished everything already. It's already been accomplished. It is done. He did what we could never do for ourselves. And, and, and to me, I think that we can too easily lose sight of the gospel, even though we know it, even though it's the best, the best news of all time. I think there are times that we're tempted to forget it. And so we simply just go on about our lives, trying to be good, trying to be a good person, trying to earn success, trying to earn love, and, and so I think, I think this little moment here in, in Nehemiah 8 addresses two important pieces to us. And, and the first concept is strength. He says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Let's start with strength. And Nehemiah knows all about this, and he's talked all about it throughout the book. He, he knows the source of his strength and, and his courage. It's the Lord. He never takes credit for anything that he does. He says, God helped me. God helped me. God strengthened my hands. He's the one who did all the work. 
And, and he knows he's unable to do all the things, all this amazing work that's just taken place. He can't do any of it. It was all God's strength. And, and, and so if you and I as individuals or if we as a church hope to do anything good, anything of kingdom value in our lives, that we, we have to stay, stay planted in that truth that the Lord is the one who accomplishes the work. It's not our own strength. So here, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14 about this. And this is what Paul says. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you might live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you might have great endurance and patience, and giving joyfully thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This passage is very clear that anything good is from the fruit of the Spirit. It's, it's of the fruit of the Spirit. It's, it's not anything that we've produced. And, and so if we're going to live a life that's, that's pleasing to God, that's worthy of the gospel, it comes by living in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. Anything of value is His. It's not ours. And the, the second key concept that I want to talk about in this joy of the Lord being our strength thing is, is now the joy of the Lord. It, it, and it deals with our motivation. C.S. Lewis said that joy is the serious business of heaven. Joy is the serious business of heaven. And Jesus tells us in John 15 that Jesus came so that our joy would be complete. And I, I know you women at, at the conference yesterday talked about that passage, right? That, that, that's why Jesus came, is so the joy could be complete. What an amazing thing. And as Jesus is praying to his Father in the garden in John 17, right before he gives his life for us, he says that his motivation for dying is that we would have joy fulfilled. He died so that we would have joy fulfilled. I, these are, these are amazing things to hear. I, I love that the Westminster Shorter, Shorter Catechism starts with what they call the chief end of man, and that's a fancy way of saying the main purpose of people, the reason that we're here. And so the question is, what is our purpose? What is the chief end of man? And you remember the answer, hopefully. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to what? Enjoy Him forever. What? That's why we're here is to enjoy Him? What, a, what a, an amazing statement. Having joy in our relationship with Christ, that's why we're here. And so we have to stop and say, can I say that about my life, that I recognize my purpose on earth is to have joy in Christ? Is, is your life about Spending time enjoying Him. Because, see, I think you and I too often get it wrong. I think um, many of us learned Jesus like this. You are a sinner and you are going to hell. But if you'll accept Jesus as your Savior, then you won't burn in hell for eternity. And so, so you make that decision. Now, great, you're saved. Now go be a good person. 
And, and unfortunately, I think that's too often how we hear Jesus. I, and that makes the motivation all wrong, doesn't it? Make Jesus this, this thing to be used to avoid hell, but, but that's really all that it is. That's not what a relationship with Jesus should look like. Because we are grateful for what he has done, we want to be with him. That's a beautiful relationship. That's what it should look like. We are meant to live a life glorifying him and enjoying him because of all that he has done. Not trying to earn anything, but because we have learned to love him because he loved us first. The joy of knowing the Lord, the joy of having a relationship with him, the assurance of being forgiven and free, all of that ought to lead us to a place of joy. Joy is the motivation. And and so like I said last week, Nehemiah was amazing and he did great things. But if you walk away from this series saying, I'm not enough, I need to be doing more, I I, I need to uh, keep working hard and getting better so that God won't be angry with me. I'm just going to work harder like Nehemiah did and accomplish building the wall. If that's what you've taken away from this series, then I have failed you. I I want you to hear this instead. God loves us and and we are in a story of redemption. Like, Like the Jews, we were in exile and Jesus changed all of that. And, and because everything has changed by the good news of the gospel, you and I are free. We've been freed from all the other stuff. And, and that makes us free to love and free to enjoy Christ. God wants us to live for him through the power of his Holy Spirit. Our hearts should want to get rid of sin and, and distraction and all the things and all the reasons we would want to move forward in our lives. We should want to do that so that we could be closer to the Father because of we know how much He loves us. We, I don't want anything to get in the way of my relationship with Jesus. Help me to fight Holy Spirit through all of that so that I can know Him more. That's a relationship. That's beautiful. So I want you to hear once again, this is Paul pray, Paul's prayer for his great friends. When he hears about their faith, well, how does he pray for him? Pray for those people? Listen to this again. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We ask continually that God would fill you with the knowledge of his will through the wisdom and understanding that the Holy Spirit gives so that you might live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit, remember from the Holy Spirit, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with the power of his glorious might so that you might have great endurance and patience, giving joyfully thanks to the Father. That's what life is supposed to look like. We're joyfully living, giving thanks, being strengthened in Him, being empowered by the Holy Spirit to live the way uh, the Father would, would want us to, so that we can be closer, ever closer, ever closer with Him. Living a life of joyful uh, thanks to the Father because of the Son, through the Holy Spirit. We, we see the hint of that in Nehemiah, and this is how we can live. This is what change looks like, is to be affected by the gospel that we want to draw closer and closer to him through his own strength and power. Let's pray. Father, it seems 
so simple, but we make it complicated. It's just about you. It's about what you have done for us in living lives of praise, trying to draw ever near through the work of your Holy Spirit because we can't do it on our own. Father, remind us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy because of the freedom we have in Jesus, that is our strength. That is our motivation to know you more, to glorify you, to enjoy you forever because we have freedom because of Christ. Help us to get that. Help us to fight the temptation that we try to earn something. We try to be better to, 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 to please you, to make you happy that we could earn your love somehow. Father, help us to forget all of that, what the world says we should do. God, that we would live joyfully in your grace because of Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.